And we're back. Welcome to all our listeners this evening. Um, this is Pat and Rod Save the World. Uh, we'd like to say a special welcome to all our listeners from the People's Republic of China. Uh, we know you're listening. We've had a look at the, uh, the what is it, the unique? Yeah, the unique IP addresses that have been hitting our podcast over the last week have um, seen a dramatic increase from zero to around a third um, of our audience being Chinese. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, firstly, thank you. Um, it's always uh, always good to get some listeners. Uh, hopefully it's, um, uh, well, it, it'd have to all be related to uh, the Hong Kong dis- uh, protest discussions we've had. <laughs> yeah, and Rod and I can't help but cynically wonder whether or not we really appeal to the general Chinese population or whether or not there are various Chinese government agencies doing searches of podcasts that have Hong Kong and its protests as a topic of discussion and they're the ones listening in. So, Well, not just podcasts, but just, you know, any, uh, you know, posts on social media, Twitter that have certain key phrases that pop up. Yeah, true. Uh, and I wonder actually how it would have... They're probably crawling podcast um, pages, which wouldn't be too hard to do. So um, to the extent that we've got some new listeners who are normal people from China, welcome. And to the extent that we have repressive cunts who work for the Chinese government, hey, fuck off. Go fuck yourself with All a right. cactus. <laughs> with a cactus. Graphic. <laughs> uh, so what's the agenda today, man? Just let me bring it up. Yeah. Um, so plenty of interesting things happening. No uh, question. Yeah. Um, Russia has been in the headlines again this week, and I'm fascinated by Russia. Um, you know, uh, allegations of spy planes and miniature submarines. It's uh, it's all very James Bond, really. Um, and uh, and Sweden um, is uh, well shitting itself. Um, uh, aside from that. There's, uh, there was the, the Blackwater uh, mercenaries. Do we call them mercenaries? Contractors? I like, yeah, I like calling them mercenaries. I mean... Private contractor sounds a little bit to me like someone you have come and do your lawn. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't see how they would fall outside of the classic definition of mercenary. No, they don't. They're yeah. mercenaries. So, you know, a few of uh, those guys were sentenced. Or, sorry, not sentenced convicted um today long road to get there but yeah tell me about it yeah what, what, what year was that it was 2007 yeah. was the apparent incident yeah. so it's not even an alleged incident now we don't have to say alleged um they've been convicted and await sentencing so the other thing that we wanted to talk about were the deaths in nepal connected with landslide uh it was or yeah, was it an land, avalanche landslide or avalanche i'd have to double check that yeah probably Uh, one and the same thing in many instances. And we're just going to talk generally about the idea of adventure tourism, uh, what drives people to do it, whether or not we should spend our hard-earned tax dollars saving people who get themselves into trouble. Um, So, yeah, let's kick it off with Russia, man. You know a lot more about it. Oh, we should, by the way, say what week we're in. Um, This podcast is for the week ending 25th October, 2014, just for a little bit of context. So take it away on Russia, mate. Right, yeah, Russia. Vladimir Putin, my God, that man needs to be punched in the face. More so than any uh, world leader, I just want to punch him in the face. Mm. Hello to all the Putin bots out there. We might we might suddenly get a uh, an upswing in... Um... <laughs> in Russian, in Russian <laughs> traffic. Trip. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah, the main things that have been happening with Russia this week uh, concern Sweden um, and also a, uh, a report uh, that in 2008 uh, someone from the Russian government basically uh, proposed to Poland that they split Ukraine between them. Um, and that's, uh, that's quite some time ago. So if, uh, if those allegations had any factual basis to them, uh, you could see that Putin has sort of been planning the, or you know, Russia has been planning their Ukrainian adventures for quite some time. Mm. So, 
So uh, which one would you do you think we should start with, the uh, Ukraine or Sweden? Sweden? Yeah. Um, I think it's a bit more immediate than the yeah. Ukraine. So, yeah, and it's also, it's kind of a new thing, isn't it? Like Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it seems, uh, I mean, there's uh, all the Russia stuff with uh, with Ukraine and annexing uh, Crimea and uh, and all that. That's, a, that's, you know, a lot of coverage about that. And then se- seemingly... Uh, at least in terms of an international media perspective, out of nowhere, um, you've suddenly got um, uh, the Swedes desperately searching for a miniature sub which they've had reports of in their uh, territorial territorial waters. Um, a miniature sub. A right? miniature sub. So basically, a little uh, a little spy sub. Um, from uh, from a report I've read, I can't remember the paper I read it in now. Um, Maybe the time, maybe the New York Times, maybe the... Anyway, not so important. Um, that it had been uh, launched from a, a larger ship, um, a larger Russian ship. At the time that people were searching for, apparently there was a very large Russian uh, tanker just toing and froing just outside Swedish territorial waters. Um, and uh, and people thought that maybe that had been what had, uh, had launched the... Uh, the sub, of course, uh, important to note that Russia, uh, you know, denies strenuously that there are, there is any such sub. But the Swedes are certainly seem seem very convinced by it. Who um, us <laughs> Russia? Why ever would we do such a thing? Yeah. Well, because you've got some expansionist ambitions. Um, yeah, and uh, and Sweden, having uh, downgraded their military for so uh, so many years. I uh, have their work cut out for them finding um, said miniature submarine. Um, there's uh, there's reports of sailors going around on little rubber duckies, um, peering into the water while soldiers stand on shore trying to look out for things. I'm sure they there's a lot more uh, high tech stuff going on as well. Um, well, you'd like to think so. Y- yes. Uh, <laughs> but the Northern Europeans are renowned for being very peaceful people these days. and Which I find funny, seeing though, of the Vikings. Yeah, I suppose they just got it out of their system. I suppose they did. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, one of the contentious things, at least as far as America is concerned, over the last, uh, you know, frankly, uh, the last decade and a half, ever since the end of the Cold War is that the Europeans are not taking defence seriously. They're not spending much money on it. Yeah. They expect that America will be there to save them in any serious military confrontation. Um, and and you can only imagine that Putin's been watching that. Sure, yeah. I mean, he is expanding his military at a rate of knots and um, does not seem to have much in the way of resistance from the rest of Europe. Well, the rest of Europe implies that Russia is part of Europe, but generally no, speaking... not Europe. Yeah, they're not. What what are they classed as? Uh, Continent wise, I mean. Well, I mean, most of Russia is in Asia. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. So you'd actually call you wouldn't call Russia an Asian country though. Yeah. I suppose it's the bridge between Europe and Asia. But I mean, when you get over on the bloody the far eastern side of Siberia, it's, that's that's as Asian as as you can get. Yeah, that's true. Um, but then you know, all the way on the other side, where they're up against the Finnish border. And then that's clearly not Asia. So it's just uh, Russia is a, a problem you run into when you're dealing with a country that size. <laughs> yeah, it's fairly exceptional in that respect. Yeah. Um, so you've got Russia, I suppose, expanding the bounds of its initiative, to put it kindly, by these little incursions by, by sea and air into northern European countries' territory. Yeah. Oh, just quickly, um, after a few days of the, re- the reports of the miniature sub, uh, I think it was yesterday or this morning, um, headlines started breaking about uh, Swedish fighter jets scrambling uh, to try and um, uh, intercept or find a, um, a Russian spy plane. Or to head them off, I yeah. suppose. The idea being that hopefully they'd change direction once the Swedes have scrambled their jets, yeah. um, which is not a sort of a set of concepts you hear in the same sentence very often, is it? Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, 
it's when I started seeing these headlines, I thought of a conversation I had with a good mate of mine, Andre from Norway. Not sure if uh, if you've listened to any of these ones yet, Andre. But um, at the start of the year, back in uh, back in February, um, uh, ran into Andre, and we were having a a talk about Russia and its ambitions for Europe because it was um, obviously you know some of the Crimea stuff was starting to kick up then, uh, and. Andre was uh, was pretty convinced that um, well this was just the beginning, and uh, and that Russia was going to be uh, going to be eyeing off other nations after Ukraine, mm. and uh, certainly seems to have been borne out on that. Mm. It's an interesting thing about the Russians in that you hear a lot of left wing media, uh, Democracy Now, being a good example, and the argument basically is is that the West has aggressed against Russia up until um, a few years ago when the Russians decided to take back the initiative and, and play offense as the best kind of defense. What do you think of that argument? Uh, Having... so, so that's the argument about the, um, the ever-increasing uh, spread of NATO, uh, contrary yes. to agreements that... Na- was the agreement that NATO would never go beyond... Uh, uh, east of uh, east of of, uh, Poland. of Poland, yeah, that, that Ukraine would never become part of NATO, yeah. um, and the other part of it, um, um, I've lost my thread of thought. Uh, asking whether or not uh, I thought oh, there was yes. any validity to that. The other thing was the installation of missiles yeah. in Poland, which was considered a real step against the Russians by the Russians. The Americans, of course, swore black and blue that they were primarily interested in Iran in those missile installations. But uh, even well, (laughs) the sense that I got was that the Americans were full of shit and that there was really no reason to have those installations there but to counter intercontinental ballistic missiles from Russia. So yeah. I think that particularly during the Bush years, there was a pretty aggressive foreign policy that um, didn't take into account the feelings of the Russians. And so I think there's a certain degree of truth to it, but you would know more than me. Yeah, since... I, can, I, can, I can see that point, but I can also see that, say, for the uh, Ukrainian people of Crimea, uh, who are now part of Russia... That any sort of arguments about um, oh we were just responding to uh, to Western aggression probably wouldn't fly for them um, because uh, they've now been invaded um, and uh, mm. it's interesting. I think Putin's meeting with a lot of success, and if I was to sum up his um, foreign policy doctrine, it would be with this: What are you going to do about it? So he does activity A. Oh, how annoying. I'm not sure if our listeners heard that, but that's the new operating system for uh, OSX. Um, uh, I can't even remember the name of it. Probably not so important. No, not so important. Sorry about that. That was my phone interrupting my computer, which is a new feature of the current operating system, not that you care. What a pain in the ass. Sorry, man. I don't even know how to stop that, actually. <laughs> anyway, so what are you going to do about it? Yeah, what are you going to do about it? Um, so yeah. we have Obama with don't do stupid stuff as the driving um, principle behind his foreign policy, and we've got Putin with what What are you going to do about it? And maybe what the fuck are you going to do about it would suit the affect that he's assumed a little better. Have we? T- have you uh, Have you mentioned the anecdote about the stolen ring with Putin on this podcast oh yet? Oh my God, that is such a fantastic anecdote. No. Because it, it speaks to the heart of, well, what the fuck are you going to do about it? You know I what? I've forgotten a few of the details, but I really think it's worth stopping for a second. I'll find out a few details yeah. and we'll come back. Good call. So we've done our research and found the article with the relevant details about Vladimir Putin stealing the Super Bowl championship ring belonging to Robert Kraft, who is the owner of the NFL New England Patriots. I think this is worth, um, it's worth quoting this article verbatim because it, it 
sums it up pretty well. Speaks to the heart of Putin. It does, I think. The New York Post reported on June 14 that Mr. Kraft had told a US audience that he once met Mr. Putin in 2005 and showed him the US $25,000 ring team players and owners are awarded for winning the US Football League final. Mr. Kraft said that Mr. Putin took the ring in his hands and then slipped it in his pocket after first joking that, quote, I could kill someone with this ring. Quote, I put out my hand and he put it in his pocket and three KGB guys got around him and walked away, he said, using the acronym for the Soviet Secret Service to refer to Mr. Putin's security detail. So that's the end of the quote. Um, and what subsequently happened is that there were inquiries made via the embassy, um, apart from the initial inquiries made in the room after Putin had exited. And all to no avail, uh, Putin wandered off with the ring and it was never to be... Uh... He saw something shiny. He wanted it. He took it. Uh, and he had the muscle to back it up. That's, that's basically Putin in a nutshell. Just... Just a shit human being, really, with a lot of power. Yeah. What are you going to do about it? And um, I think that that's actually a really great metaphor for the way that he behaves in foreign policy. Arguably, that's how everyone behaves in foreign policy. But I think that what's particularly dangerous about Putin's game is that he is a nuclear power and he's squaring off against other nuclear powers and the rules are all of a sudden incredibly murky. Yeah. In the Cold War, there was a fairly well-worn system for avoiding complete mutual annihilation. And now, it's anyone's guess how things are going to play out. Yeah. And that really adds instability to the global system. And it is, at least It does seem opinion, like a... Sorry, I just interrupted you. But sure. I, yeah, it, it seems like a much more unstable world now than... 1980, like 2014 compared to 1984, sort of height of the Cold War tensions. I um, don't have any personal experience to discuss that uh, particular period of time, but just my gut feeling that today with, um, you know, with uh, the rise of terrorism, the almost collective, uh, a loss of the collective fear about nuclear war and uh, mutually assured destruction that people people don't even consider that sort of thing anymore as something to be concerned about um mm, and i think that they're wrong about that um i i don't think that anyone on either side is really interested in a nuclear war um for obvious reasons yeah. but people fuck up and miscalculation is always the risk and over a long period of time where there's instability and where fallible human beings are involved, the risk of someone letting one of those things rip really increases. So to my mind, it's really the most dangerous thing going on in the world today. Even if ISIS gets all the play, yeah. I worry much more about Putin um, doing something silly, there being misunderstandings and there being a nuclear exchange after a series of uh, ever escalating responses yeah. and counter-responses. I think it's concern It's certainly going to um, potentially affect more countries than, uh, than you know, the ISIS threat. You've already got Ukraine. Um, Poland is worried. Finland is worried. Sweden is worried. Um, I can't think of many countries in Eastern Europe uh, that aren't every single day concerned about Russia at the moment. Yeah, the question is, are the Germans concerned enough to act as a bulwark against the Russians. Um, ultimately, they are the biggest player in the European Union. And Merkel, because of the reliance of Germany on Russia for gas, has really taken a softly, softly approach. Yeah. Um, to the chagrin, particularly, of the Americans. I think uh, it's probably worth pointing out, because we're probably sounding a little bit apocalyptic here. Um, I, I still feel that it is highly unlikely that we're going to be suddenly seeing any, you know, large-scale uh, military actions involving many countries uh, in Eastern Europe with uh, with Russia as a, um, 
you know, imperialistic aggressor. That said, if someone had told me in 2008, oh, by the way, Russia's just going to invade Ukraine, take over Crimea, um, and, uh, and set off a massive period of instability in Eastern Europe, um, mm. I probably wouldn't have. Uh, I probably wouldn't have thought that was going to happen either. Yeah, it's a good point to make that um, by no means are we awaiting the apocalypse here yeah. in Richmond. Uh, but nonetheless, having the risk of a nuclear exchange back on the table is a shitty risk to have. It's completely avoidable, and you know, I for one was hoping or was happy on the provisional assumption that we'd kind of gotten past that. <laughs> but apparently not. We seem to have regressed, or at least Putin has pulled us back in that direction with his adventurism. It feels like I'm in a fight with human nature and I just want to shout out, haven't we already talked about this? Yeah, it's a bit like <laughs> I that. thought we'd gotten past this. Come yeah. on, people. Yeah, I really would have thought that we'd learned our lesson on that one. It was a kind of shitty existence for a few decades with everyone worrying about it, but apparently the Russians have not had enough. Uh, so, after that rather parochial statement, yeah. um, to move on to a discussion... Oh, sorry, one final thing sure. on, uh, on Putin just before yeah. we go, um, just because it's uh, uh, always nice to acknowledge our listeners. Good mate of mine, Carson Walker... Uh, wanted to uh, wanted to know why Australians weren't more pissed off at uh, at Putin, um, specifically in relation to the Malaysia Airlines uh, flight being uh, being shot down over Ukraine by uh, Russian-backed rebels, um, in which a number of Australians died. Um, and um, I thought that was a it was a, an interesting question because when you think when you put it like that, you're like, yeah, why aren't more Australians outrage. Um, and uh, I think it's, um, it's just one of those things. It, people were angry when it happened, uh, but it seemed to slip out of, uh, out of people's minds relatively quickly uh, for something of that magnitude. Um, That's true. And do you th- I, do you, I mean, was it the fact that, you know, we then all got distracted by, by ISIS and bogus reports of uh, of terrorism in Australia. Um, yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of it. General apathy would be another part of it. I think also the fact that the waters were fairly muddy, hmm. that never helps either. The fact that the media didn't have a clear narrative to run with, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 really, the media loves an unequivocal bad guy. And when you've got... Um, Islamic jihadists cutting the heads off people in the desert. Um, that's always going to be, I think, the more attractive black and white story to to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair enough, and I think um, that could um, lead us on nicely to Blackwater. So Blackwater barbarism um, in the desert. Yeah. Um. There was a, I'll, I think I'll just stop for a second and get the date of the verdict. And we're back. And we're back. So, federal jury in Washington, D.C. convicted four Blackwater private contractors. Mercenaries. Mercenaries, yeah, let's use that word. Um, in the fatal shooting of 14 unarmed Iraqis. Um, in 2007. I've got 17. 17, do you? Yeah. Uh, the Nisor Square Massacre in 2007 left 17 people dead and 20 seriously injured. That's mm. the report I've got. The Washington Post says 14 dead yeah. and uh, 17 wounded. Interesting. So, um, you know, in total, 31 casualties. So... Um, do your research, peeps. <laughs> We've got two newspapers that disagree. What's your... What's uh, Guardian. Your, the Guardian, okay. Well, I'm reading from the Washington Post, so I suppose the internet um, shows sometimes that there are a few inconsistencies in reports. Anyway. So I think one of the interesting aspects of this is that uh, there was one um, bit of damage to the Blackwater Convoy's vehicle, which apparently came from shrapnel, which was from an American grenade fired at short range. 
So it's unclear who exactly fired that grenade, but I think the implication is is that uh, it may well have been the contractors themselves. Yeah, there's a um, a particular uh, stomach churning little paragraph in this report. Uh, prosecutors claim Slatten, um, who uh, he's been found guilty of first degree murder, um, uh, viewed killing Iraqis as payback for 9/11 and often deliberately fired his weapon to draw out return fire and instigate gun battles. Right, so clearly a fucking sicko. Yeah. Um, and actually, one of the chaps who testified against the others, I don't think he was one of the three that was convicted today, um, basically said that that guy had, quote, lost it in Iraq, um, which is, I think, an all-too-familiar story. Um, so... The other thing I think is worth noting is that the um, explanation provided by these guys was that they had received incoming AK-47 fire and that shell casings had been found at a bus stop at the scene, but that was by no means uh, conclusive that they'd actually taken that fire. And from all accounts, it seems that um, they really just let rip at no particular provocation and... Um, <laughs> it would surprise me if this wasn't a fairly common occurrence, at least from the anecdotes that you hear from both returned veterans and um, Iraqis themselves. So I think that this is an interesting topic for another reason at the moment, and that is that um, there have been advocates of using mercenaries to fight ISIS. Um, and those calls have increased in volume since the American air campaign has not exacted quite the toll that people were hoping for on ISIS. Um, it fact seems to be helping to arm them. It does, yeah. I should be clear that one of the primary proponents of this idea is Bill O'Reilly, who's a, a twitty, um, I would call him a television, television shock jock, really, um, Unfortunately, one of the highest rated opinion news shows in the world, which is on Fox News, and he basically said, why not send mercenaries? If we're not interested in committing our own, um, we can just pay dudes to do it for us. Um, there, have, there have also been other advocates of um, using private military personnel or mercenaries. Why am I a victim to that euphemism? I don't know. Mercenaries. Um, Eric Prince, who is the guy who founded uh, Blackwater, he now doesn't work at the associated entity or the, the descendant entity. Blackwater was renamed Z, X-E, and then it was purchased by another company and is now known as Academy, with an I at the end. Yeah. So I that think seems strangely periodically they just change their name yeah. because they just do their brand in <laughs> after every few years of activity and just have to kind of change it up to keep ahead of the reputation that they're making themselves. Anyway, this chap Prince wrote a blog basically advocating um, that mercenaries be used against ISIS. Now I'm not saying that either Bill O'Reilly nor Eric Prince should be people that we listen to on this topic, but um, what am I searching for here? I'm not sure that if you're a believer in American intervention in Iraq, which I'm not, that it is such a bad idea to use mercenaries. What do you think? I uh, put yourself yeah, in the yeah. position of a person who really thinks that America should should be there, but don't want to have their own troops there. That's right, because yeah. everyone's trying to square that circle. Yeah, everyone I mean, wants and, the influence. And, uh, and if if you are in that, uh, if you are of that belief, then it would seem like uh, like mercenaries is um, the way to accomplish that goal. Uh, it seems to me to be the only solution to yeah. the conundrum. Uh, well, short of getting uh, Arab nations off their ass and having their own troops there. Um, yeah, which I can't see happening anytime soon. No. Um, although the Turks have apparently been a little more accommodating over the last week. Um, nonetheless, there's no real commitment from the surrounding countries. And 
in the event that you believe that America should control the outcome, so far as ISIS is concerned, and on the other hand, America is not willing to have boots on the ground, I think that the only realistic option is mercenaries. Am I wrong? Well, you could also be doing your level best to convince, not to, if not uh, other Middle Eastern countries, but just any other countries in general to be putting troops in. Uh, you would have to put your own in. No one would put their troops in without the Americans. Uh, except for Australia. Um, we're sending 200 troops over. Yeah, um, as advisors. At, yeah, that's... <laughs> I know that that's I know that that's a very flexible concept, yeah. but the idea of but there are going to be Australian boots on the ground without yeah. American ones. Look, I think and you I make think a that, reasonable. I think that's point. a slippery slope that was will soon lead to more because our prime minister is a dickhead. Maybe we should just avoid, uh, um, rather than we, maybe I should avoid the phraseology boots on the ground because clearly there are American and Australian boots on the ground at least. So, I mean, what should we call it? A significant military force. Yeah. Um, a military force that is um, operational and aggressive. I think, yeah, the expression boots on the ground is pretty misleading, yeah. as you point out. So that's a fair point to make. Also, I don't believe that uh, they will just remain as advisors. Oh, no, advisors are always, <laughs> yeah, involved. Um, it's uh, what's happened time, from time immemorial. Um, most famous sort of early case being the Vietnam War, where the advisors were heavily involved in combat uh, very, very early on before um, they decided to commit more general military units to the enterprise. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, so they could, I mean, nations with uh, gung-ho wannabe wartime leaders such as uh, Abbott in Australia. Uh, I'm sure there's some others around the world where um, America could be leaning on them to, uh, to provide operational troops. Um, so the question is, if you're a I, I'm not sure if that's a more realistic option or a better option for them than, uh, than mercenaries, but it's, a, it's another option. I just wonder whether or not if you... This is a difficult sort of topic to approach in that what your assumptions are around military... Um, you know, fighting and dying for king and country. I mean, they have a material impact on how you feel about mercenaries. Yeah. Um, and you get into dangerous territory if you end up saying something like, well, how different are mercenaries to guys in the general military? I mean, a lot of people in the American military are not there because they're real believers in the in in protecting America. They're there because they get it's a good, free yeah. education. Yeah. It's a way out of poverty in many cases. Um, it's I a mean, job that they can get. It is, and I know that's a controversial thing to say, but I think the statistics bear it out, at least the ones that I've seen, and I mean, is that really that far from being a mercenary? Are you just a less intelligent slash skilled mercenary at that juncture? I don't think intelligence or skills have anything to do with it. Well, what would be the I suppose what would be the difference in skills between a normal? Well, a mercenary and... is an ex-soldier for the most part, yeah. and so no difference in skills at all. No, I don't think so. They're more experienced, yeah. almost by definition, because they've done their first they've done their first contract at least. Yeah. So they're more experienced than a guy who's two years in because they're at least, you know, five years in. I think that's the first the first term of a contract for someone who joins the military in America is five years. So um, mercenaries are almost always going to be more experienced than people in the military on aggregate. Um, and, yeah, I feel uh, like this is more dangerous territory than what we've discussed before. Uh, I don't know. You don't? No. It's a sensitive area to talk about people who sort of go to war and, you know, they, they fight and kill 
in the name of what is essentially a line in the dirt. Um, you know, the country is just an abstraction. And I suppose I, I don't see why it's a more negative thing to fight and kill for money than I do to fight and kill for an abstract entity like a country. In fact, one set of guys seems to me to be more realistic about the thing. Um, do you, how do you feel about someone who goes into the military currently? I'm not talking about previous wars because I think that there are many differences in access to information and education. Yeah. I mean, people who go into the military now um, and they, they get themselves sent to a war, uh, I mean, do they really think they're doing it for... Well, I, I mean, obviously I can't speak for, uh, for all soldiers, but I, I have met a couple, and you know, with... Um, you know, within circle friends and, and family who've joined the military over the past 10 years. Yeah. And for the most part, and this is only a handful of people, they were doing it because it's a good job. Yeah, the people I've met, and some of them combatants, were keen on the challenge. Um, I think there was a little bit of rhetoric about um, protecting the country and the like, although that's pretty hard to sustain when you're hanging out in an Afghani valley, yeah. shooting at God knows who for God knows what reason. There was a uh, there was even a very brief period of my life where I considered joining the military uh. just because I was sick of being out of a job. <laughs> wow, man! Never it, disclosed that one. It, uh, it thankfully didn't last very long, and I'm very very glad it didn't. That particular thought. Um, when did you think that? Uh, that was after I got back from Singapore, and um, uh, and I yeah I was sending off a lot of job applications and nothing was coming up. What year? Two thousand and ten. Uh, two thousand and end of two thousand and ten, start of two thousand and eleven. Shit. Okay, so things were underway. Yeah. Yeah, and you still thought about it. Hmm. For want of a better job. Yeah. Yeah. Because nothing else was coming up and I was broke. Yeah. And I mean, I sympathise with that. Um, that's a tough position to be in. And I feel kind of squeamish about ascribing a judgement to people who do that. But I suppose... If you're a believer in rocking up to someone else's country and having your way with a gun, whether you be motivated by a belief in king and country or motivated in the, a belief of your bottom line being an important thing for you, so <laughs> important that you're willing to kill people for it, um, I don't know. I just... I don't think that one is innately inferior to the other and that's mainly because I think that it's misguided to think that you're doing it for any good reason. So that probably sums up my views on it. <laughs> and I feel vaguely uncomfortable having explained them. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll have a theory later about why I feel so comfortable. I mean, my old man was in the military, so I feel uncomfortable about it because, yeah. It's just a difficult situation when you get young, impressionable people who end up in situations like that. He was drafted, he didn't volunteer, and he did Vietnam. But um, And it's different in nature and quality, but there are certain things that are similar. And I suppose that I feel like in judging those people, then perhaps I'm, ju I'm judging him, and I don't know how I feel about that. So it's probably why I feel vaguely uncomfortable about the whole topic. <laughs> let's, let's move on to the next one, man. Oh, just quick, uh, one last it, thing. Sorry. One last thing on the actual Blackwater case. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which we didn't end up talking too much about. Um, and probably a warning against having mercenaries involved in these things. Yeah. Um, but uh, just, you know, a very belated well done to the, uh, to the American legal system, I suppose. Because there were there were millions of Iraqis who just um, who thought that these guys were going to get off scot free, basically. Yeah. Um, and it took a very long time 
to uh, you know 2007 to 2014. That's not a quick process. No. But they you know got there in the end. They had the process. They were on, they had their trial. Um, they had their chance to to have their say and prove their innocence, and the jury uh, found them guilty, and they are now awaiting sentencing. So, well done. Yeah, it makes me feel better that guys involved with those kinds of incidents are perhaps sleeping a little less well, although they're probably racked by post-traumatic stress syndrome and aren't sleeping too well anyway. But it's nice that there's some added discomfort for them if they're involved in incidents like that. So, yeah. Um, so, I'm not jumping the gun about the next topic. No. Um, so tourism. Yeah, man. Talk about the facts. You know them better than I. Well, should we pause for a second? Okay, let's pause for a second. We'll be back. And we're back. So, yeah, talking adventure tourism in light of the uh, of the tragedy in Nepal, where over forty people have been confirmed dead in a uh, in an avalanche on a uh, on a hiking trail, and uh, yeah, still more more people missing, forty dead at the moment, um, and. Uh, and I was uh, I was really interested in this story uh, just because I, I've done uh, a number of things which people would probably consider adventure tourism, and uh, and Pat, you yourself have um, have done a few similar things as well. Not really. I wouldn't say adventure tourism. Yeah. Just um, you know, I could be accused of war tourism, although I hesitate to cop to that. But you know. Just sketchy situations yeah. generally, yeah. Um, and uh, and it's um, you know it sort of got me thinking about uh, you know why people uh, you know why people look for adventure, um, and uh, and I think and maybe this is just my own uh, sort of uh, prejudices coming through, but I think a lot of the people who do say the hiking in uh, Nepal and, and Everest and that sort of thing. Uh, not so much actually doing it for a sense of adventure themselves, but just so they have a good dinner time anecdote. How would you define a sense of adventure? Uh, it's a very old-fashioned notion, that one. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think just doing it because you're excited to do it, something that uh, something for your own memory, something... Actually, no, not just something for your own memory, uh, something for you to enjoy in the moment that you will then remember for the rest of your life. Um, the idea of meeting a challenge. Yeah. Um, um, doing something that's difficult because it is difficult, in the words of JFK, or the paraphrased words of JFK. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that it's an out-of-date notion. It's just that it's kind of Kipling-esque, you know. Um, so, yeah, where do you want to go with this one, man? Um uh, I think it's just what I, I was. I was thinking about, uh, and I haven't seen too many details on the um, the people who've, who've sadly lost their lives in Nepal. Um, but considering, I, I don't have have the uh, the figures. They weren't in the article I read. Um, however, many thousands of people go to Nepal every year. So that they can have a bit of a hike around the Himalayas and take quite extraordinary risks. Yeah, and mm. I don't. I, I'm just not sure how many of those people who who were there had really thought about the risks that they were taking. I think because of so how many people do it. Um, I mean, thousands of people climb Everest, and more than two hundred people have died on it. Mm. No, I, I don't think the people who are, you know climbing Everest because it's on their bucket list probably realise as dangerous it is as it can be. I'm sure most of the people who were having a guided trek around Nepal uh, probably didn't think, oh, I could be stuck in an avalanche and killed. I, I think um, there has been such a uh, increase uh, over the past decade or so of, the peop of, uh, of numbers of people who are out there um, you know, just on their random holidays doing things that, you know, 20 years ago no one would, uh, oh, only a, a small handful of people would consider doing. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, would you agree then that 
the advances in technology have given people an illusion of safety that just doesn't exist. That's a that is yeah a much better way. I was trying to think of a way of putting it, and mm. I think that sums it up nicely. So when people sort of wander up into these incredibly extreme and dangerous environments, the fact that they've got a little beacon pinging in their pocket, yeah, and they're with a tour guide, and they're with a bunch of other tourists who are you know you've got, uh, a sat phone. You've got, you've got accountants and uh, and. Uh, families and all this sort of thing and I, I think that people um a lot of people going on you know for want of a better term adventure tourism mm. um you know never quite got their mind around the idea that the reason it's an adventure in the first place is that it's dangerous oh look i will i sympathize with people who don't get danger um i myself had been in some seriously risky situations and I never really understood just how easy it was to die until I was in those situations, whereupon I wisened up very, very, very quickly. But, you know, I did feel that I was very ignorant uh, before I was directly exposed. And I think that particularly when you're young, not that I'm that old these days, but I'm 31 as opposed to 21 now. There, there was just a lack of appreciation about uh, how quickly you can end up lying on a slab uh, cold. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Something very, very, very permanent about uh, making one mistake in the wrong context. And, yeah... I think uh, there's a visceral thing that comes, I think, from experience. Yeah, that is hard to communicate, no matter how many stupid books or you read or movies you see. That's a good point, which I hadn't considered. Um, in that, for most of the uh, most of these people who are, you know, climbing Everest to tick off a bucket list or that sort of thing, mm. if they're from a comfortable middle class Western life, mm. they probably have never actually been in too much danger before they they go on one of these things and that's quite different to my own uh my own experience um you know uh i i until i'd actually had a conversation with you about this i think towards it was earlier this year um you know i'd never actually listed out the and you know or really thought about the number of times i almost died as a child growing up in the outback um, yeah, and um, and so I, you know, from quite a young age, had a you know, had that understanding that um, you know, had something just gone slightly worse at that particular point, I'd be dead right now, um, and uh, and I st you know I still love going and doing dangerous things, uh, anything to make the heart beat a bit faster, really, mm. um, but I always do it sort of with my eyes open. Like, I know the risks. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I would count myself amongst the number of people from comfortable middle-class backgrounds who weren't really familiar um, with uh, the sort of visceral reality that is death from, quote, adventure. <laughs> death from misadventure. Yeah. And I find that, um, you know, well into my 20s, I was pretty interested in risky activities, but for whatever reason, when I hit 30, I really lost the taste for it. <laughs> I can't explain it, man. For me, it was actually, it actually sort of, uh, um, it, I, I was less prone to, uh, to taking risks when I was, say, 18 than I am now at 31. Mm. Um, and uh, and I think because you know it was uh, it was drummed into us so many times you know uh, motorbike accidents that I had growing up um, running a, a quad bike through a barbed wire fence oh um, Jesus you know something you know nearly picking up one of the most poisonous steaks in Australia because I thought it was my brother's toy that he left out on the carpet. <laughs> Um, what a way to go! Yeah. <laughs> I thought we were going to get in trouble, and I, I had to go and put the uh, put the toy back in the in the uh, in the things because he was leaving them lying around, and then it spun around and 
reared oh, up and they cried. <laughs> I um yeah. What kind of snake was it? It was a little king brown. Jesus. Okay, um, right. Yeah, I've heard of those ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the question yeah, is. So I mean, I, uh, you know, uh, with all those sort of things going on in my childhood and adolescence, um, I was actually I was less prone to um, to 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 be taking risks. But then you know throughout my probably from age 19 on, um, when I sort of started uh, started going places and uh, and you know ha- you know having adventures around the world um, and realizing oh you can actually do these sort of things for fun uh, as opposed to just being risks in your daily life mm-hmm. um, uh, and I found I really enjoyed it um, but all, again, you know, always had the idea, had the the thought in mind. Yeah, I, I know that uh, it doesn't take many things going wrong just to die out of nowhere. Yes, and so the question that we were discussing earlier on is, what is our responsibility to these risk takers? Yeah, and I think that's a uh, as a society, yeah. are we obligated to help them? get out of sticky situations that they have, frankly, needlessly put themselves in. Yeah. Um, and and uh, both, of, both of us have done that. Yeah. We have, both be, we have both put ourselves in needlessly dangerous situations um, for, our, for our own interest's sake, basically. Yeah, basically, yeah. For um, interest's sake. Yeah. Prurient interest at um, some junctures yeah. for me, at least. But, yeah. So... Um, and, you know, the classic example is uh, someone wants to sail their yacht around the world and it sinks off the West Australian coast um, and, uh, and the Australian government has to uh, spend an obscene amount of money launching a, uh, launching a rescue. Yeah. Um, now, I mean, I suppose it goes without saying, yeah, you've got to rescue them. Mm. Certainly, I would want to be rescued in that situation. So would I. The question is, well, look, would you sail the yacht around the world? I mean, honestly, I think that some of the things that I've done, analogously speaking, are stupider than that. (laughs) So, like, my own opinion on this, probably because I have a vested interest in the topic, is that we need the freaks and geeks. I think the freaks and geeks are important, or the adventurers, are important for... um, progressing our understanding of ourselves as humans and that at least to a certain point it is worth essentially providing those people with an insurance understanding that if you get yourselves into trouble within reason we will do everything in our power to get you out of it to save your life yeah um I think that that is a worthwhile uh, um, understanding to maintain because I do think that sheer self-preservation prevents the overwhelming majority of people from doing that. Yeah. Doing Um, risky things and that it's a small minority and that it's worth... Well, I think it's a growing minority. So, yeah, this is where it gets interesting. More and more people are looking for adventure. And I actually, I, I think that... I, I may have sounded before like I was sort of poo-pooing that. I'm not like all for... You were poo-pooing though the idea that you would do it just for a, a sort of a, a dinner party anecdote. Without really thinking about the dangers of what you're doing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, um, really the more, like, uh, the more people who want to push their own personal boundaries and, uh, and seek out new experiences, the better, I think. Um, but do it for those reasons. Don't do it because Bob from Accounts just came back from uh, a trip to uh, a hike in Nepal. You don't and so like, you, and so you want to, uh, so you want to do one better and go to uh, to Everest Base Camp or something like that. That's a shit reason to do it. Um, and I think some people do it for that those sort of reasons. Undoubtedly, some people do it for those sorts of reasons. Yeah. But it's hard to mount an argument that this fairly amorphous sense of adventure idea is actually a superior reason uh, than 
well, beating, no, it's about, one-upping Bob from accounts. Well, because a, you could argue that we are a species, we're social. Yeah. Inevitably, we compare ourselves to those around us. And there's, um, you know, there... I don't see that one-upmanship is necessarily inferior to a kind of uh, uh, lone wolf challenge yourself approach to life. Uh, I think it's clearly inferior. Tell me why. That's inter- <laughs> that interests me, Rod. Tell me why. Uh, without really thinking about it. Um, so forgive me if this is a bit off the cuff. Sure. Uh, but uh, to start with, d- doing it because you want to challenge yourself and you want to push your own boundaries, that's about improving yourself as a human being. Doing it to one-up Bob from accounts um, is about uh, trying to put someone else down. It's automatically a worse uh, Is it trying to put someone else down? Or yeah, is you're it trying just... to put down Bob from accounts. You're trying to get one over him. Fuck you, Bob. Um, I don't know. That's... <laughs> I mean, I think you can play a game of one-upmanship without denigrating the person you're playing against. In fact, you know, as a young bloke, you, you get into those situations where everyone's trying to one-up each other, and it's actually really exciting, and it's more of a collaborative sort of... Um, it's almost like a group enterprise more than anything else. I mean, I don't... I didn't in many I think situations... We're having, I think we have very different ideas of what, uh, what we're talking about when we're saying someone doing it to one-up someone. Maybe we do. And so your understanding of that Not is... a collaborative effort at all. I'm, you know, fucking Bob over there, he's always talking about his trip to Nepal. Oh, I see. <laughs> right. Okay, that I'll is... I'll get him. <laughs> yeah. That wouldn't... I mean, that wouldn't be one-upmanship to me, but I did introduce that term. So, yeah, when you were talking about doing it for the sake of an anecdote, you're really talking about this sort of kind of pernickety, petty, competitive... Yeah. Petty competitiveness is the uh, it would be the term. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's obviously inferior. Yeah, that's what I, I was like. <laughs> I, I really were. I'm, I was more interested in hearing how you were going to defend that because that's what I was. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> I was thinking about like the idea of one-upmanship and like what used to happen as teenagers, where we would kind of climb higher on the cliff and then jump into the ocean, you know. And that was kind of we yeah. were spurring each other on to do more and more sort of risky, challenging things. And I didn't see that there was, there was a competition aspect to it, but it felt like almost well, I mean, a that, collaboration. Yeah, I mean, that, I, that would be the difference, uh, the key difference. That, that's a collaboration where you're all working together to push each other higher than you would normally go. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, yeah, that's not what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think we've reached agreement on that point. There we go. Yeah. yeah. So probably this is where we get close to turning into a pumpkin. Uh, we're at 58 minutes. So it was worth, I think, we got um, a fantastic email from our faithful listener, Stormo. <laughs> Another shout out to Stormo. Uh, we have a small circle of people listening to this. Uh, but ever growing in China. Ever growing in the, the Chinese contingent. Um, so Stormo made a fantastic point about Ebola. Uh, which was that SARS, um, the it was the avian bird flu, wasn't it? Or was SARS? Uh, no, a SARS, different SARS was a it was SARS. Then there was bird flu. Then I think there was swine flu. Right. And there was you know there was the bit of there was media panic about each of those ones, and they all turned out to be so yeah. much uh, so much hot air. So um, SARS never got out of um, Asia despite being actually an airborne virus. Um, And that, I think, is worth keeping in mind. Clearly, Ebola is less contagious than SARS in that you could communicate SARS both via the air and via fluids. fluids. And I think that that's a good way to put into perspective the risks that we're at with the idea of like a bowler leaking into the international tran- transport system and and tear assing through the world via plane. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think there is uh, a qualification that's worth uh, that's worth making um, 
firstly Ebola much more deadly than than SARS. Definitely. Um, and secondly, despite being uh, less contagious than SARS, has actually already uh, made it to Europe and made it to the United States, which SARS never did. Um, so despite being just in its makeup less contagious, mm. um, seems to be somehow doing a better job of spreading itself. And I think you make a really good point about the fact that Ebola is just more deadly. So the usual statistic is, hell, 55,000 people die of the flu every year in America. And it's like, well, yeah, they do. But frankly, the flu is kind of the grim reaper. Like if you are really old, you are going to have a chance of dying from the flu. But when you're in the, the prime of your life and you're healthy and you're getting around, the flu is extremely unlikely to strike you down. But when you look at something like Ebola, where you're dealing with like 40% death rates in it's something Liberia. Like, yeah, it's something like that. I mean, yeah. those are extraordinarily high fatality rates. And Ebola has been known to have fatality rates up to 90% yeah. in other outbreaks. So it's kind of different. And yeah. I don't like it when the health authorities talk about well so many more people die of tuberculosis and flu and pneumonia it's like well look they're just not comparable there's also just the sheer terror aspect of bleeding out your fucking eye sockets before you die it's It's a bad way to go yeah man i mean it's really 28 days later shit so you know i suppose that um we're in agreement on that one, man, and I think we're about to turn into pumpkins, so let's let's call it a day. All right. See ya. Till next week.